Chapter thirty two of the Sea Wolf. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Sea Wolf by Jack London. Chapter thirty two. I awoke oppressed by a mysterious sensation. There seemed to be something missing in my environment. But the mystery and oppressiveness vanished after the first few seconds of waking when I identified the missing something as the wind. I had fallen asleep in that state of nerve tension with which one meets the continuous shock of sound or movement, and I had awakened, still tense, bracing myself to meet the pressure of something which no longer bore upon me. It was the first night I had spent under cover in several months, and I lay luxuriously for some minutes under my blankets, for once not wet with fog or spray, analyzing, first, the effect produced upon me by the cessation of the wind, and next, the joy which was mine from resting on the mattress made by Maud's hands. When I had dressed and opened the door, I heard the waves still lapping on the beach, garrulously attesting the fury of the night. It was a clear day, and the sun was shining. I had slept late, and I stepped outside with sudden energy, bent upon making up lost time as befitted a dweller on Endeavour Island. And when outside, I stopped short. I believed my eyes without question, and yet I was for the moment stunned by what they disclosed to me. There, on the beach, not fifty feet away, bow on, dismasted, was a black-hulled vessel. Masts and booms, tangled with shrouds, sheets, and rent canvas were rubbing gently alongside. I could have rubbed my eyes as I looked. There was the homemade galley we had built, the familiar break of the poop, the low yacht cabin scarcely rising above the rail. It was the ghost. What freak of fortune had brought it here, here of all spots? What chance of chances? I looked at the bleak, inaccessible wall at my back, and knew the profundity of despair. Escape was hopeless, out of the question. I thought of Maud, asleep there in the hut we had reared. I remembered her, "'Good night, Humphrey.' My woman, my mate, went ringing through my brain, but now, alas, it was a knell that sounded. Then everything went black before my eyes." Possibly it was the fraction of a second, but I had no knowledge of how long an interval had lapsed before I was myself again. There lay the ghost, bow on to the beach, her splintered bowsprit projecting over the sand, her tangled spars rubbing against her side to the lift of the crooning waves. Something must be done, must be done. It came upon me suddenly, as strange, that nothing moved aboard. Wearied from the night of struggle and wreck, all hands were yet asleep, I thought. My next thought was that Maud and I might yet escape. If we could take to the boat and make round the point before anyone awoke, I would call her and start. My hand was lifted at her door to knock when I recollected the smallness of the island. We could never hide ourselves upon it. There was nothing for us but the wide, raw ocean. I thought of our snug little huts, our supplies of meat and oil and moss and firewood, and I knew we could never survive the wintry sea, 
and the great storms which were to come. So I stood, with hesitant knuckle, without her door. It was impossible, impossible. A wild thought of rushing in and killing her as she slept rose in my mind. And then, in a flash, the better solution came to me. All hands were asleep. Why not creep aboard the ghost, well I knew the way to Wolf Larsen's bunk, and kill him in his sleep? After that, well, we would see. But with him dead there was time and space in which to prepare to do other things, and besides, whatever new situation arose, it could not possibly be worse than the present one. My knife was at my hip. I returned to my hut for the shotgun, made sure it was loaded, and went down to the ghost. With some difficulty, and at the expense of a wetting to the waist, I climbed aboard. The forecastle scuttle was open. I paused to listen for the breathing of the men, but there was no breathing. I almost gasped as the thought came to me, What if the ghost is deserted? I listened more closely. There was no sound. I cautiously descended the ladder. The place had an empty and musty feel and smell usual to a dwelling no longer inhabited. Everywhere was the thick litter of discarded and ragged garments, old sea boots, leaky oil skins, all the worthless forecastle dunnage of a long voyage. Abandoned hastily was my conclusion as I ascended to the deck. Hope was alive again in my breast, and I looked about me with greater coolness. I noted that the boats were missing. The steerage told the same tale as the forecastle. The hunters had packed their belongings with similar haste. The ghost was deserted. It was Maud's and mine. I thought of the ship's stores and the lazarette beneath the cabin, and the idea came to me of surprising Maud with something nice for breakfast. The reaction from my fear and the knowledge that the terrible deed I had come to do was no longer necessary made me boyish and eager. I went up the steerage companionway two steps at a time, with nothing distinct in my mind except joy and the hope that Maud would sleep on until the surprise breakfast was quite ready for her. As I rounded the galley, a new satisfaction was mine at thought of all the splendid cooking utensils inside. I sprang up the break of the poop and saw Wolf Larsen. What of my impetus and the stunning surprise, I clattered three or four steps along the deck before I could stop myself. He was standing in the companionway, only his head and shoulders visible, staring straight at me. His arms were resting on the half-open slide. He made no movement whatever, simply stood there, staring at me. I began to tremble. The old stomach sickness clutched me. I put one hand on the edge of the house to steady myself. My lips seemed suddenly dry, and I moistened them against the need of speech. Nor did I for an instant take my eyes off him. Neither of us spoke. There was something ominous in his silence, his immobility. All my old fear of him returned, and by new fear was increased a hundredfold. And still we stood, the pair of us, staring at each other. I was aware of the demand for action, and my old helplessness strong upon me, I was waiting for him to take the initiative. Then, as the moments went by, 
It came to me that the situation was analogous to the one in which I had approached the long main bull, my intention of clubbing obscured by fear until it became a desire to make him run. So it was last impressed on me that I was there, not to have Wolf Larsen take the initiative, but to take it myself. I cocked both barrels and leveled the shotgun at him. Had he moved, attempted to drop down the companionway, I know I would have shot him. But he stood motionless and staring as before. And as I faced him, with leveled gun shaking in my hands, I had time to note the worn and haggard appearance of his face. It was as if some strong anxiety had wasted it. The cheeks were sunken, and there was a wearied, puckered expression on the brow and it seemed to me that his eyes were strange. Not only the expression, but the physical seeming, as though the optic nerves and supporting muscles had suffered strain and slightly twisted the eyeballs. All this I saw, and my brain now working rapidly, I thought a thousand thoughts, and yet I could not pull the triggers. I lowered the gun and stepped to the corner of the cabin, primarily to relieve the tension on my nerves and to make a new start and incidentally to be closer. Again I raised the gun. He was almost at arm's length. There was no hope for him. I was resolved. There was no possible chance of missing him, no matter how poor my marksmanship. And yet I wrestled with myself and could not pull the triggers. Well, he demanded impatiently, I strove vainly to force my fingers down on the triggers, and vainly I strove to say something. "'Why don't you shoot?' he asked. I cleared my throat of a huskiness which prevented speech. "'Hump,' he said slowly, "'you can't do it. You are not exactly afraid. You are impotent. Your conventional morality is stronger than you. You are the slave to the opinions which have credence among the people you have known and read about. Their code has been drummed into your head from the time you lisped, and in spite of your philosophy, and of what I have taught you, it won't let you kill an unarmed, unresisting man. I know it, I said hoarsely. And you know that I would kill an unarmed man as readily as I would smoke a cigar, he went on. You know me for what I am, my worth in the world by your standard. You have called me snake, tiger, shark, monster, and caliban. And yet, you little rag puppet, you little echoing mechanism, you are unable to kill me as you would a snake or a shark, because I have hands, feet, and a body shaped somewhat like yours. Bah! I had hoped better things of you, hump. He stepped out of the companionway and came up to me. Put down that gun. I want to ask you some questions. I haven't had a chance to look around yet. What place is this? How is the ghost line? How did you get wet? Where's Maud? I beg your pardon, Miss Brewster. Or should I say Mrs. Van Wyden? I backed away from him, almost weeping at my inability to shoot him, but not fool enough to put down the gun. I hoped desperately that he might commit some hostile act, attempt to strike me or choke me, for in such a way only I knew I could be stirred to shoot. This is Endeavor Island, I said. Never heard of it, he broke in. 
At least that's our name for it, I amended. Our? he queried. Who's our? Miss Brewster and myself. And the ghost is lying, as you can see for yourself, bow on to the beach. There are seals here, he said. They woke me up with their barking or I'd be sleeping yet. I heard them when I drove in last night. They were the first warning that I was on a lee shore. It's a rookery, the sort of thing I've hunted for years. Thanks to my brother Death, I've lighted on a fortune. It's a mint, but what's its bearings? Haven't the slightest idea, I said. But you ought to know quite closely. What were your last observations? He smiled inscrutably, but did not answer. Well, where's all hands? I asked. How does it come that you are alone? I was prepared for him again to set aside my question, and was surprised at the readiness of his reply. My brother got me inside forty-eight hours, and through no fault of mine. Boarded me in the night with only the watch on deck. Hunters went back on me. He gave them a bigger lay. Heard him offering it. Did it right before me. Of course, the crew gave me the go-by. That was to be expected. All hands went over the side, and there I was, marooned on my own vessel. It was death's turn, and it's all in the family anyway. But how did you lose the masks? I asked. Walk over and examine those lanyards, he said, pointing to where the mizzen rigging should have been. They have been cut with a knife, I exclaimed. Not quite, he laughed. It was a neater job. Look again. I looked. The lanyards had been almost severed, with just enough left to hold the shrouds till some severe strain should be put upon them. Cookie did that, he laughed again. I know, though I didn't spot him at it. Kind of evened up the score a bit. Good for Mugridge, I cried. Yes, that's what I thought when everything went over the side. Only I said it on the other side of my mouth. But what were you doing while all this was going on? I asked. My best, you may be sure, which wasn't much under the circumstances. I turned to re-examine Thomas Mugridge's work. I guess I'll sit down and take the sunshine, I heard Wolf Larsen saying. There was a hint, just a slight hint, of physical feebleness in his voice, and it was so strange that I looked quickly at him. His hand was sweeping nervously across his face as though he were brushing away cobwebs. I was puzzled. The whole thing was so unlike the Wolf Larsen I had known. How are your headaches? I asked. They still trouble me, was his answer. I think I have one coming on now. He slipped down from his sitting posture till he lay on the deck. Then he rolled over on his side, his head resting on the biceps of the under arm, the forearm shielding his eyes from the sun. I stood regarding him wonderingly. "'Now's your chance, Hump,' he said. "'I don't understand,' I lied, for I thoroughly understood. "'Oh, nothing,' he added softly, as if he were drowsing. "'Only you've got me where you want me.' No, I haven't, I retorted, for I want you a few thousand miles away from here. He chuckled, and thereafter spoke no more. He did not stir as I passed by him and went down into the cabin. 
I lifted the trap in the floor, but for some moments gazed dubiously into the darkness of the Lazarus beneath. I hesitated to descend. What if his lying down was a ruse? Pretty, indeed, to be caught there like a rat. I crept softly up the companionway and peeped at him. He was lying as I had left him. Again I went below, but before I dropped into the lazaret, I took precaution of casting down the door in advance. At least there would be no lid to the trap. But it was all needless. I regained the cabin with a store of jams, sea biscuits, canned meat, and such things, all I could carry, and replaced the trap door. A peep at Wolf Larsen showed me that he had not moved. A bright thought struck me. I stole into a stateroom and possessed myself of his revolvers. There were no other weapons, though I thoroughly ransacked the three remaining staterooms. To make sure, I returned and went through the steerage and forecastle, and in the galley gathered up all the sharp meat and vegetable knives. Then I bethought myself of the great yachtsman's knife he always carried, and I came to him and spoke to him, first softly, then loudly. He did not move. I bent over and took it from his pocket. I breathed more freely. He had no arms with which to attack me from a distance, while I, armed, could always forestall him should he attempt to grapple me with his terrible gorilla arms. Filling a coffee-pot and frying-pan with part of my plunder, and taking some chinaware from the cabin pantry, I left Wolf Larsen lying in the sun and went ashore. Maud was still asleep. I blew up the embers, we had not yet arranged a winter kitchen, and quite feverishly cooked the breakfast. Toward the end I heard her moving about within the hut, making her toilet. Just as all was ready, and the coffee poured, the door opened and she came forth. "'It's not fair of you,' was her greeting. "'You are usurping one of my prerogatives. "'You know I agreed that the cooking should be mine, and—' "'But just this once,' I pleaded. "'If you promise not to do it again,' she smiled. "'Unless, of course, you have grown tired of my poor efforts.' "'To my delight, she never once looked toward the beach, "'and I maintained the banner with such success "'all unconsciously she sipped the coffee from the china cup, "'ate fried evaporated potatoes,' and spread marmalade on her biscuit. But it could not last. I saw the surprise that came over her. She had discovered the china plate from which she was eating. She looked over the breakfast, noting detail after detail. Then she looked at me, and her face turned slowly toward the beach. "'Humphrey,' she said. The old, unnameable terror mounted into her eyes. "'Is he?' she quavered. I nodded my head. End of chapter 32